Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Mike Judge, co-created the animated sitcom King of the Hill, a show that became kind of famous for how much heart it had. It's a quality the network bosses had trouble seeing in the early days. I remember at one point, one of the executives was just worrying that Hank was just too angry. And, oh, he's this right-wing angry guy. And because he's talking about, look, oh, the way he's talking to his son here. And uh, right behind him was a poster of Homer strangling Bart with his feet off the ground. (laughs) (laughs) And just kind of pointed behind him and said, well, he's not going to strangle him at least. (laughs) It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Mike Judge about his HBO comedy Silicon Valley and the parallels between Hollywood and the tech industry. Plus, he'll tell me about his early days when he drew animations for his shorts, like Beavis and Butthead and Office Space by hand, and listen to himself do the dialogue over and over. They say in comedy, if you've rehearsed something or done it a bunch of times, you start to lose track of whether or not it's funny. Well, this was, I listened to it about twice as many times as there were syllables in the whole thing. So, so I mean, I was just convinced that I just made this horrible, unfunny thing. Uh, yeah, it was actually very funny. Then later I'll talk to Sharon Horgan, co-writer and star of the Amazon show Catastrophe. It's a dark comedy about a relationship born out of a one-night stand. It paints a hilarious, sometimes bleak picture of early parenthood feels brutal and honest. Because Sharon and her co-writer Rob Delaney have both had that brand new baby experience themselves. She looked four months old. Um, She had the face of a sumo wrestler. And she was handed to me and I just thought, oh my God, I'm never going to bond with you. I was lucky because two hours later, she was the love of my life. And look, this week on The Outshot, I honestly couldn't not talk about Prince. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Mike Judge is a guy who's attuned to the little things. A lot of his work, like Beavis and Butthead or Office Space, barely has any jokes in it at all. The comedy comes from little noises, little character traits, little acknowledgments of existential futility. His current show, Silicon Valley, isn't much different. It's about a young programmer who comes up with a brilliant technology idea and then struggles to become the kind of guy who can implement a brilliant technology idea. Here's the protagonist, Richard, in the show's pilot. He's just come out of a meeting. He's gotten sick on the way out. He's at the doctor, and he's telling the doctor his whole situation. Basically, he can't figure out whether to take a $10 million buyout or to bootstrap the company himself. You know, a while back, we had a guy in here in almost the exact same situation. Take the money or keep the company. What happened? Well, a couple months later, he was brought into the ER with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. I guess he really regretted not taking that money. He he shot himself because he turned down the money? Yeah. Or no, no, he took the money. Or no. No, he did not. I don't, you know what? I don't remember. But whatever it was, he regretted it so much that he ended up shooting himself, and now he's blind. He's blind? Yeah, just FYI, if you're ever going to shoot yourself, don't hold the gun up to your temple, okay? Because that just basically took out both of his optic nerves and then, you know, half of his face. Then his wife left him because, you know, 
Yikes. Right. You know, he may have been a genius programmer, but not so much with human anatomy. <laughs> or decision-making, for that matter. Now he's got to live with all that. And whatever terrible decision he made about the money. Uh, and what, and what uh, do I do if I feel another panic attack coming on? Hmm. Would you be interested in a device that links up to your smartphone and it keeps track of your vitals and it tells you, even before it's happening, whether you're having a panic attack or an actual heart attack? Yeah, that sounds great. You would, right? Yeah. Okay, that's great news because it's still in prototype phase right now, but my startup partners and I are looking for investors, like today. So will you please let me know, I'm gonna give you my number, if you do end up taking that $10 million because we could really make the world a better place. Silicon Valley just started its third season on HBO and is still in production, so I spoke to Mike Judge at his office. Mike Judge, welcome to Bullseye. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I feel like a lot of the press around Silicon Valley has focused on the theme of the fact that you worked at a technology company once for like six months. Yeah, well, I worked at a... I had three different engineering jobs, so the ones that were actually – two of them were in Silicon Valley and, yeah, probably a total of six or seven months, I guess. I guess I wonder if if part of the autobiographical part of this show for you is less about that experience and more about the terror of being a, like a creative person, a creator – who's forced into the position of being in charge of everything. Yeah, I think that's accurate. It's more, I mean, the autobiographical part, when when I was first, uh, you know, in the early stages of pitching the show, or especially when it was going to go to series, um, I think when it clicked for Michael Lombardo, who's the president of HBO, was when, you know, I was saying this, this is a very similar thing to what happened with me if you were to substitute a compression algorithm for... Beavis and Butthead short film I had made, it kind of blew up very quickly. And eventually I had a couple billionaires fighting over it also. So it's, uh, and, and, you know, I, I was a person who had never had anybody work for me at all, had always been pretty low key person. And suddenly there's just like all these kind of demands on hiring, you know, 35, eventually 60, 70 people, working for me. So yeah, that part of it's autobiographical. And then just the nature of the personality types, that's, that's probably the part that comes from me actually having worked it and, you know, gone to school with engineers, worked engineering jobs. And I've spent a lot of time, I, I lived up in Silicon Valley for a little over a year, but then my ex-wife is from Palo Alto. And so I was just up there, you know, every holiday we'd be there. And so I know the, I know the area pretty well. When you created Beavis and Butthead, you were literally a one-person operation, just a, like a guy and some colored pencils or something and a, and a yeah. movie camera, right? Yeah. I mean, originally, the first two shorts, it was uh, – I did use colored pencils and ink um, on paper. And Beavis and Butthead was the fourth short I made. So I was expanding to uh, cell paint and animation cells and watercolor and uh, – had my ex-wife do a little bit of cell coloring. Um, but yeah, it was pretty much a one-man thing. Um, I'd do all the voices and music and just do the whole whole deal. Why did you think you could do that? Um, I didn't really have a choice. I mean, I was uh, had no connections. I had 
uh, had no friends. No, I, had, <laughs> I didn't have any friends who did this kind of stuff. I didn't, you know, um, and that was actually something that, you know, I'd always wanted to try to do sketch comedy and that kind of thing. And I had a friend in high school who was a really funny guy and we had talked about doing, trying to do something, but there's just two of us and, you know, cameras and all this stuff cost money. No one ever had any money. There was a friend of mine in, in Dallas actually around the time I started doing animation, um, Bob Musgrave, who was later one of the leads in the movie Bottle Rocket with Luke and Owen, but, but like we used to talk about maybe doing sketch stuff, but his ideas were always impossible to do, <laughs> would cost a lot of money. But and when I got the idea to do animation, it just clicked for me like, wow, I don't need anybody else to do this. I can just do this myself, you know, and uh, it's going to be a lot of work, but I was willing to do that. And that's, yeah, the, part, got, that's the part that I'm interested in because, you know, when you are – these days a computer can take some of the grunt work out of animation, but – even now, the prospect of sitting down to animate something is like 10 trillion times more than I could ever imagine doing. <laughs> was there something there where you felt like, I know that I'm going to have to make 25,000 drawings or whatever, but I can... Yeah. yeah, well, what was kind of exciting about it was, because I'd always wanted to try to figure out a way to break into show business, you know, to break into comedy or something and, and just had no connections and didn't know how you'd, you know, I'm not the type of person who can just go wow people and be funny in front of them and whatever. I um, So, and I didn't live anywhere near Hollywood. So what was kind of, that that was actually the exciting thing to me is that I bet no one else is willing to do this much work to, you know, to make something. And I also knew that uh, maybe I had a combination of qualities that, was a little unusual because I could, um, you know, I had a what one of these Tascam four-track recorders that you it would use a audio cassette, just a typical one, you know, any old audio cassette, and it would use their stereo on both A B sides, and it would run them all together, and you'd get four tracks. So you could do multi-track recording for this thing you could buy for like six hundred bucks or whatever. So I had one of those. So I was recording music and trying to do a little comedy bit. So I already had that, and I knew if I could just get the animation part to work, I might have something that could be funny. And uh, that's just what I started doing. So I, but yeah, I mean, it was a lot, I got books on it. I, I was before the internet. So I actually went to the library and uh, got books on it. And um, yeah, I did stuff like timed all the lip sync with a stopwatch and which I don't, I may be the only person who's ever done that, that I know of. Normally you would use, there was another process you'd use to do it, but um, what is it? What do you mean you were timing it with a stopwatch? What does that mean? So you have to when someone's talking in animation. Um, back then, you'd have what's called an exposure sheet. You'd have a track reader do it. That that cost money, but you just sit there with a stopwatch and figure out where every syllable happens on what frame, so that you can time the lips to move. So the first cartoon I did was this was actually called Office Space, and it was the character that you know Milton and Lumberg that later became the movie and that was so I'd recorded it and yeah I was just sitting there I put beeps at the beginning and was you know <laughs> sitting there like meticulously going through the whole thing you know and they say in comedy when if you've rehearsed something or done it a bunch of times or written it you, you start to lose track of whether or not it's funny well and this was I mean I was literally I listened to it about twice as many times as there were syllables in the whole thing so so I mean I was just convinced that I just made this horrible, unfunny thing, but I thought, well, at least 
I'm learning how to make an animated film. The next one will be better. And that was just, I knew I was just going to keep making them because I liked making, I mean, the first time I got film back for a little test and it's like, wow, it looks like a cartoon. I was actually, I knew that's what I wanted to do for a while. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. I'm talking with Mike Judge, the creator of the HBO comedy Silicon Valley. You might also know him as the mind behind Beavis and Butthead, King of the Hill, and Office Space. I spoke to Mike Judge at his office, where he was in production on the third season of Silicon Valley. Let's actually take a listen to uh, a little bit of uh, Milton, uh, that short that inspired uh, oh. the short that inspired Office Space later, and inspired, in some ways, my guess, Mike Judge's entire career. I told Bill if they move my desk one more time, I'm quitting. I used to be over by the window, and they moved me three times already this year. And and if they do it one more time, I'm out of here. I used to have my own stapler, too, and then when I moved back, they made me give back my stapler. But Bill told me I'm supposed to have a stapler, so until I'm told different, I'm just going to take a stapler. If they make me give it back, I'll just I'll set the building on fire. I um one time when I think I maybe was still I was either I, I might have still been in college I was definitely still in Santa Cruz where I started doing the show when I was in college. I interviewed uh, Spike from Spike and Mike. Oh um, boy! <laughs> yeah. And uh, I had gone to these animation festivals. As a kid uh, in San Francisco, every year, every time they were in town, and later had gone to see the uh, Sick and Twisted ones when I was a teenager, and it was such a magical thing. And I met this guy who was very nice, and he had this kind of weird, uh, like, maybe 16-year-old gutter punk assistant with him. And Sounds right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, just talking to him for half an hour, I was just in awe that he was able to just get from city to city <laughs> Much less. Yeah, I don't. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, he's a, he sort of. Uh, yeah, he was him and him and Mike were uh, not not the easiest people to deal with. They they. Um, yeah, he's they, neither of them are animators. They not even close. They were just sort of. Uh, they had done flyers for someone who was doing a similar thing. And then they just started doing it more aggressively. Um, but yeah, those shows had an amazing reach. I mean, um, the number of people that will tell me, oh, I first saw your stuff in the Sick and Twisted show. Um, and they were, it was really surreal for me because I was, I'd never, you know, I started just mailing these things out and had had never, you know, like I'd, that thing had played on Comedy Central, but I'd never met Spike in person. Like I would just mail them to him and then I would hear about how, like uh, how they're playing huge. He he never played Office Space, by the way. He didn't like that one. But um, they had the first Beavis and Butthead short, and seeing it all play in front of a crowd. I mean, that was that was about as good as it gets. I mean, that was that was a really good time. Did you ever think, oh, the best way for me to pursue an entertainment career is to move to New York or Los Angeles or like join the Groundlings or something like that? You know, I. I didn't know you could join the Groundlings or Second City. I really didn't. I thought that Second City was a TV show. I hadn't really – I don't know if I'd even heard of the Groundlings then. Um, again, it's not like you could look up on the internet, you know, improv comedy. I, to me, the options were, okay, you could go try to be a stand-up and go to open mic nights, and I just had a feeling I wouldn't be good at that. And 
So no, I didn't. One thing that kind of cured me of uh, thinking that I could do that, um, my roommate uh, had a friend who he grew up with in Seattle. This was, so I was at UC San Diego at this time. And uh, he's, and this guy was sort of making it in L.A., starting a video distribution company. Actually, his name's Lee Savage. He's one of the – he just recently – he's the writer of – one of the writers of uh, Straight Outta Compton, actually. But at the time, he was like a guy who was kind of doing stand-up a little bit and had some video distribution thing going. And so he, he was having a party at his house, and me and my roommate – drove up for it and there was just all these kind of LA cool comedian people and everybody's on and I just was looking around going okay I could never make it here <laughs> I could, that's just not going to happen so I ruled that out very quickly and um what did you not think you could do oh I can't just come into a room and be louder than everybody else and you know like out talk anybody or you know um everyone it just all seems so slick and and everyone's cool and everybody's on and um yeah, so I didn't – just kind of ruled that out right away. We have a clip from the short film Frog Baseball uh, that featured oh Beavis and Butthead. I don't know how that's going to play just as audio. Um, Get ready for a lot of grunts and sound effects. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean I mentioned that a significant portion of the comedy in your work just comes from little noises. Yeah. Um, well. <laughs> so uh, Beavis and Butthead who – I mean you oh, know, boy. if you don't know who Beavis and Butthead are, get your act together – um, uh, they're basically standing in a field. They're lighting different stuff that they found in the field on fire or, and or attaching it to uh, firecrackers. Um, anyway, uh, they find a frog. Dude, a frog! Apologies to anyone who's particularly <laughs> sensitive to fictional audio yeah, of <laughs> frogs being the sensitive to sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> so you had had a few of these shorts that you were making, like at home by yourself, get into exciting places. I mean, besides getting some stuff on Comedy Central, you had got onto uh, MTV's Liquid Television. That was where yeah. um, Beavis and Butthead started to get some traction. What was the point where you realized that this was a real thing that you could really do for a living? I mean, really, the the first one, that first Office Space short cost me probably, well, all in by the time I made a film print of it, it was probably cost me like six or seven hundred dollars. And there was something called the animation celebration. It was different than the Spike and Mike thing. And that was the first they picked it up. Them and Comedy Central picked it up before Spike and Mike had played my stuff. But um, they, uh, like Comedy Central, I think, paid me like 2000 and the other guys 1500 So I was already profiting off my first short. So I thought I should just... <laughs> you were already okay, rich. Okay, at least it's a, it's a hobby that, I, that doesn't cost me money. So I was going to keep doing it. Um, and then each one, I never, you know, I was never 
losing money on them. It would take me about eight weeks to do two minutes, so it cost me time. But I, I yeah, like, like doing it. Yeah, like at some it. point, you, I understand that you're describing how you didn't lose money on any of yeah, them. <laughs> well, uh, okay, <laughs> at so. At some point, you have well, to <laughs> profit in order to pay rent. And... Well, actually, okay, so um, I guess what year was it? 91, 92? One of those years I remember on my tax returns, because Liquid Television had licensed all four of mine, and so. I just remember licensing fees. I was actually, I was actually making almost as much money as my ex-wife was. <laughs> I mean, I made like something like forty-five thousand dollars in in a year, which at the time, living in Dallas, I mean, we had a house that was like that was my goal at the time. Well, I was going to, along with playing music, I was going to uh, grad school part time. I was going to become a math teacher, um, like at a community college. That was that was my plan, and. That year, that was actually as much or more than I would have made as a math teacher. So things were good. I mean, I figured it was worth I was just going to give it a couple of years, you know. It's a show about the two dumbest, grossest adolescents on earth. Like, that's basically <laughs> the premise. It's just like if we took the two dumbest, grossest adolescents on earth, they're kind of sweet sometimes too in a way, but mostly dumb and gross. And they communicate with each other in kind of guttural sounds mostly, (laughs) substantially anyway. Um, And I think that, like, that was part of what got people so freaked out about it was, like, wait, this is on television and our children like it. And, you know, the line between satire or and (laughs) tribute (laughs) gets blurred. People got freaked out. Like, did you feel confident when you were making it that you were making a positive contribution to the world? <laughs> Actually, no, I, I did. I mean, there, now there. Are, that said, there are some episodes that, um, I mean, while all this was going on, I was also very conscious of, you know, John Chris Felucci had been fired from his own show. I didn't want to blow it. This was my one chance to, you know, and as much as I had, disliked all my day jobs. I knew I got, I got to make this work. I have kids, you know, um, I didn't want to get fired. So a lot of times I would, you know, they would, promo writers would write a script. I'd say, should we really do this? Okay. I, w- I would play along. It, it, and, and that tended to be more stuff that's like grosser than like, I don't like just gross out comedy. I really don't, even though a lot of it made it in there. I think to me, it's the character stuff that's interesting, but yeah, I actually really do think, I mean, ultimately they're really fairly naive, innocent characters. And I think, and they're such total losers that I never felt like, you know, I mean, I, I felt pretty good about it. I, I actually think, and, and I used to get a lot of letters from women in their fifties who were writing to say how much it helped them talk to their teenage sons about sex. It gave them a way to, to do that. And, um, I would get a lot of letters actually from, from parents, very positive ones, and I, I don't know if it's because that was a demographic that liked it or just because each one of them thought they were the only ones that liked it, so <laughs> they felt compelled to write. But uh, So when you made the feature film Office Space, which um, is now you know maybe even the most beloved thing you've ever done, it wasn't a commercial success out of the box. And, and I read a magazine feature about you that was maybe 10 or 15 years old that talked about the fact that after that movie came out, you know, I, I had always just presumed a narrative of 
Mike Judge, Beavis and Butthead guy, makes Office Space, movie fails, Hollywood shuns Mike Judge. <laughs> um, yeah. And I got the impression that maybe it was at least as much about you withdrawing as it was about Hollywood shunning you. Was that true? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I was, it was, I was shunned for maybe three or four days, but then it started to get a lot of really good reviews <laughs> and a lot of, I mean, Hollywood responds to actors and, and, and uh, you know, I, I was, I was definitely bummed out, you know, I opening weekend. I, what really bummed me out is I'd, I'd fought the studio so hard for a lot of these choices. Like I, you know, they didn't like the cast. They hated the music I put in there. They didn't want any of that gangster rap in there. And I really fought and won all those battles to have it come out and fail. So there was a lot of, well, you know, you don't know what you're doing. You should have listened to us, that kind of feel. But then fairly quickly, like opening weekend, Jim Carrey, who I was a huge fan of and I had never met, he called wanting to meet me. Um, all these people, uh, the Zucker brothers, um, um, Madonna called, wanted, I met with her. Like all these, so actors started, um, Chris they're Rock, real, they're Michael pretty Keaton. solid breath there. Yeah. <laughs> Jim Carrey yeah. to the Zucker brothers. You're like, yeah, sure. And then you're, you're hitting me with a sucker punch with Madonna there. <laughs> yeah, a lot of, uh, it reached, uh, it just sort of, it started to get a buzz pretty quickly. And, and directors are hard to find in, in Hollywood because you have to, you know, if you have, studio wants to make a movie, you, you, you want a director that the actors are going to like. And so I think suddenly I was in this category of, oh, actors want to work with him. Actors liked the movie. So that was, that was kind of, that's what happened. And I got offered a lot of big comedies or not, not maybe a solid offer, but hey, would you be interested in directing this? And yeah, I did turn them down for, for years. I just didn't want to go through that again. Um, what was the thing that you didn't want to go through? Oh, just all the, you know, you start to get something good. You're, oh, this scene's working great. You know, they're smashing the printer. This great Ghetto Boys song is playing. And then just the studio saying, okay, take that song out. Maybe cut the whole scene. Maybe, you know. And it's just it's just constantly like you're, you want to make something good. And you're like, okay, this is great. I'm loving what I'm doing. And then just, no, that's no good. That sucks. And, and it just, I, I actually got my, what I was going to do then, um, I actually bought a 16 millimeter movie camera and I was going to start making movies just with my own money and just play around with it that way. Um, I just didn't want to go. I also, you know, I'd, I'd kind of been away from home. My daughters were young at the time. I wanted to just stay in Austin and just, you know, not miss out anymore. I'll finish my conversation with Mike Judge after a break. He'll tell me about how Leave it to Beaver inspired King of the Hill. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from The Black Tux, the new way to rent a tuxedo. The Black Tux designs and manufactures handsome modern suits, far from the polyester mess you'll get at the old dusty tux shop. Select from complete looks or build your own. The suit will arrive seven days before your event, which leaves plenty of time to try it on. If the fit needs a tweak, the Black Tux will do whatever it takes to fix it in time. Shipping is free both ways. If you need to rent a suit or tuxedo for an upcoming wedding or special event, you don't have to do it the old-fashioned way. Visit theblacktux.com bullseye and experience a new way to rent. 
Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Try out the NPR One app for your phone. Every Thursday this month, you can hear episodes of Pop Culture Happy Hour a day early, exclusively in NPR One. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour, stories from your local station, and more great podcasts on the NPR One app. It's on your app store now. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. I'm talking with Mike Judge, the creator of the HBO comedy Silicon Valley. You might also know him as the mind behind Beavis and Butthead, King of the Hill, and Office Space. I spoke to Mike Judge while he was in production on Silicon Valley at his office. Silicon Valley just started its third season on HBO. Let's talk for a minute about King of the Hill. Because you uh, created it with Greg Daniels, who had come from The Simpsons, um, and because it was headed to Fox on Sunday nights, it was pitched essentially as like, oh, the companion to The Simpsons, and everyone expected maybe zany irreverence from the guy who created Beavis and Butthead teaming up with the Simpsons guy. Um, And King of the Hill is like one of the most emotionally sincere uh, family comedies, certainly that I've ever seen um, on TV. Was your goal always to create something that was that deeply felt? Um, to me, you know, I'm I'm just a fan of the classic TV, what I grew up watching. And, yeah, no, I wanted to do a show like Leave it to Bieber or Andy Griffith's show. And um, I'd written a pilot, done the drawings and all that stuff. And um, I, I definitely wanted it to be different from Beavis and Butthead. And, and I didn't, you know, I, I kind of knew people were going to be expecting that. And so that was... Uh, it was actually kind of fun to surprise everybody like that. I didn't know if uh, – I think they were a little scared of me at first that I was going to, I don't know, be difficult to do some awful thing. That you were going to want to play Ghetto Boys over there? Yeah. <laughs> well, luckily that was before <laughs> Office Space. But they, they – uh, I remember uh, at one point one of the executives was just worrying that Hank was just too angry and, oh, he's this – right-wing angry guy and, and right behind this executive was a because he's talking about like oh the way he's talking to his son here and uh right behind him was a poster of homer strangling bart with his feet off the ground <laughs> and just kind of pointed behind him and said well he's not gonna strangle him at least <laughs> but uh <laughs> he just pointed to his before. t-shirt and said don't have a cow man <laughs> that's what i should have done there are um you know i'm a i'm a father as well and there are a lot of shows uh comedy shows especially about uh dumb and incompetent dads um you know yeah. I, I understand why that is sort of logistically i mean you know when a to some extent in a sexist society, it's easier to yeah. uh, make fun of the more powerful uh, person by the rules of sexism. Um, yeah. And so like, I'm not against that necessarily, but, um, but one of the things that I love about King of the Hill is that Hank is certainly a very, Hank Hill is a very flawed character um, and an interesting, distinctive character, but he's, he's treated so respectfully by the show. So, you know, he is, he is treated like a, he is a human, yeah, a loving, <laughs> <Which> is... <laughs> a loving human. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that was the idea 
from the beginning is take these characters that Hollywood would normally be, they'd be the butt of the joke and actually treat them with dignity and have them, but have them be real. But, um, but also, you know, and we talked about this a lot at the beginning that it's, it's almost because Hank's kind of being emasculated by the modern world that, um, having him be the one who's right. And then as the series went on, especially having Peggy be kind of crazy was really fun to do because it kind of turns that typical sitcom thing on its head, playing that, uh, you know, that kind of just, you know, a little, a little crazy, but just, you know, right on the line. And then also very full of herself and, you know, it became a more interesting character. I think male comedy writers tend to write females as just, oh, she's smart. She's sexy. She, they, they think that that's a, that, oh, women are going to love me because I'm writing this great character. She's, you know, because she has, they just heap good qualities on, on a female character. And, and I remember actually Kathy saying once that, you know, the great characters are ones with flaws. And uh, I think that's, I, I'm, I'm, glad and proud of what we did with with that character and with you know that we didn't fall into that typical sitcom thing we were talking about silicon valley and the ways that the protagonist kind of terror at running a business um is sort of the driver of the show were there points in your career that you felt that similar kind of terror oh yeah i mean it's a it's a similar thing, you know, where it's this, the character in Silicon Valley, Richard Hendricks, was, you know, kind of playing around, had a nap he wanted to do, and then it blows up, and and it's like, once you're in a competition, you don't want to, you don't want to lose, or it's not even about being competitive. It's like somebody's trying to screw you. You don't want to let them. It's just human nature, and you know, I became kind of became more of an aggressive person than I knew I had in me in some situations, you know, just because um, suddenly it's your reputation that's out there and in your name and, and there's, you know, now, you know, there's blood in the water and people trying to just get at you and you, know, you get caught up in this thing. And we've found a lot of, you know, th analogous things to between what our characters are doing with the startup and just Hollywood in general, you know, it's, it's very, VCs are a lot like executives, you know, trying to mess with your vision. You can get a bad investor like we had in season two with the Russ Hanneman character. There's a lot of, you know, we got, there's, that's what's helped us a lot in the writing is there are some, a lot of similarities to, uh, to the Hollywood experience. Well, they're both these worlds that have these yeah. huge, can sometimes have huge consequences and like weird, you know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. things where you, are just walking forward normally and then you realize you've fallen into a pit or like things where you're walking forward normally and you realize you've been launched into space. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hollywood in the 90s was more similar to the tech world now or the early 2000s, I guess, you know, pre-writer's strike. <laughs> uh, but um, we were at TechCrunch Disrupt, which we use at the end of the first season. It's a, um, it's a big competition that's called Startup Battlefield where Dropbox and Yammer and these companies came out of there. And uh, you see these people, they're about to go on stage and they're just sick to their stomach. And, you know, they're whether or not they're going to go down in tech history and become billionaires or just be forgotten, it's all down to these little moments, you know. And um, it's almost like Hollywood times a thousand, really. I mean, I guess 
I guess it's, you know, it's high stakes here too. It's just, uh, up, up there, it's just, it's also just kind of funnier because these are very, even more introverted people than I'd say I am. And, and they're just thrust onto this stage where they're, you know, just billions at stake and reputations and, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting and funny world. They're also both in Hollywood and in uh, the tech world. The like the creative people, the people who are at the soul of the thing, um, I have chosen to do this thing specifically because of their social deficiencies. Yeah, <laughs> like both performers, both yeah. performers and you know writers and stuff. You know, you you choose that just yeah. like Bobby Hill. You know, you choose it because you're. Yeah. left out in some way <laughs> and the tech guys choose it because they're left out in some way or because they love the experience of being alone working their way down through a tunnel you know yeah yeah if i you know if i was comfortable working in a cubicle i probably never would have done any of this and um if i was more of a normal person <laughs> but uh <laughs> but i uh yeah i think that's true i mean um and also if i the the whole startup culture really didn't exist when I was an engineer. I mean, to to start a company then you needed more, just more of an investment. You couldn't. It's you actually not, had to make something. You like had to, it, hardware. You had yeah. you had it, hardware was involved. I mean, there were software companies, but even those, you, it's not like every person in the world had a PC at the time. So it's yeah, it was it was just a, a different world. But had it been this kind of world, I mean, I. I who knows? I mean, I could have seen doing a startup like back then. But, uh, you know, instead I went and made dumb cartoons. You want to give me your elevator pitch right now? I mean, <laughs> we're on in the oh, Bay no. Area. <laughs> I don't have any ideas, but <laughs> I would have come up with one. <laughs> it's funny, on this show, anytime, you know, you were trying to come up with a fake idea, it's usually either been done, even if we're coming up with a bad idea, or it like for example in the first in the pilot there's this app that big head has called nip alert which was deliberately supposed to be a horrible idea and sexist <laughs> and stupid and in between that time and when the show came out it was actually at the TechCrunch disrupt that we went to for research after the pilot was done some australian guys came up with something called stare i don't know if you're allowed to say that but and it was just sort of you written about as like okay this is sexism and Silicon Valley, and we were going, oh, now they're going to think we just took that and <laughs> did it. But we actually we actually came first. I'm not proud to say. Well, I mean, it's crazy. It's like sort of like a, it has an element of mass hysteria to it. I mean, I, like every yeah. journalist who goes into that world, like you can just see them like fighting their urge. They're just like, so all I have to do is yeah. <laughs> come up with an elevator pitch and Mark yeah. Andreessen will give me $100 million. <laughs> like I just talked to Mark Andreessen. Yeah. Like the whole, the whole even the, now the city of San Francisco feels like it's infected with this fever dream. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a lot of craziness to it. And, you know, I mean, I think... Because we've gone so deep into researching it, it's almost, I sort of, at some point, yeah, I was kind of saying, wait, what, why are we just trying to, why are we messing with a TV show? Let's just go make an app. <laughs> what, you know, we're trying to think up fake apps to put in our TV show. We know all these people. Why don't, but then 
when you get very deep into it, you realize it's not that easy. And not only that, but when someone says their company is valued at a hundred million, it probably means that their paycheck at the end of the year is maybe fifty thousand. <laughs> I mean, that's what they're valued at. That means that a certain percentage of their shares has been paid for, but you'd have to pay for the rest of them and sell it and to, to really get that money. So it's not. There's a lot of and a lot of inflated value and all that stuff and and. I fear that there's a bubble coming, so I'm I'm pretty much cured of coming up with an app <laughs> at this point. What about the show business bubble? Bubble? Have you heard about that? <laughs> yeah. All people want to watch is mobisodes. I know. <laughs> oh, believe me, I know. Yeah, it's it's weird how everything's. It, well, we're in it. This also this weird. You know, I mean, we're doing a show about the tech world as this the medium that we're in is just just changing every day you know and because of the tech boom and and just the way the technology is changing so it's yeah it's a very weird time to be and a good time to be doing a show about tech i mean occasionally actually from doing the show we'll you know like we were talking to our consultant about the whole blockchain thing the way that bitcoin works and then just sharding of the internet kind of stuff and just going wait a second could this mean that uh, that anyone can steal anything at some point? And what's this going to mean for is television business going to collapse? And then movies and yeah, it all is. You know, that's I'd, I'd be a little more scared, I guess, if I was twenty two. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I was in the business when you couldn't steal everything so easily. And you have all your assets in gold. <laughs> gold buried in uh, Switzerland. I, I think, um, actually, speaking of it like that, that office space, the Milton thing that I think you played. That's as much as I spent all that time with the stopwatch and all that, and it's now on YouTube, out of sync, which is just so <laughs> aggravating. It's there for the ages to be seen, and all that work I did with the stopwatch, because I really did get it right, and it's wrong <laughs> on the internet, and that's that drives me crazy. I mean, you can't it, for all the great technology that's out there. I mean, why can't YouTube get something in sync? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Well, Mike Judge, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was so great to get to talk to you. Oh, likewise. Thank you. Mike Judge, his show Silicon Valley airs Sunday nights at 10 on HBO. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Catastrophe, sort of a different kind of romance. It's a British TV show. It runs on Amazon here in the States. It's about a slightly lost school teacher and a slightly dopey American advertising guy who hook up in London. They think it's a particularly enjoyable one-night stand until they realize that she's pregnant. And then, eventually, they fall in love. It's a slightly hokey premise, told without an ounce of hokiness. It's gross and rough and scary. The characters aren't anti-heroes. They're just human beings who mess up sometimes. And it's really funny. In the second season, we're dropped into their married life. Two kids and a whole new set of problems. My guest, Sharon Horgan, created and writes the show with Rob Delaney. They star together, too. Here's a scene from the second season. Horgan's character has been staying home with the baby. She basically doesn't know anyone except the people from her mommy group, almost all of whom she hates. There's only one that she bonds with. Uh, They sort of bond in class, but then when Sharon tries to make them friends outside of class, uh, she ends up getting the cold shoulder. 
Rob comes home from work one day, and Sharon wants to vent a little. I got dumped today by my mum friend, Samantha. She doesn't want to see me anymore. I couldn't even hang on to a mum friend. And it's not like she's all that. It's not like she's Beyonce. She said I should go and hang out with the mombies, and you know what? She's right. Every single one of those mums is probably more interesting than me. Rob. What? What I just said. You're not going to say anything. Do you not care? Right now, I don't know that I do care about that. I mean, we've got two kids under the age of three. My job is a nightmare, and those things use up all my daily care units. So sometimes, when you need attention at the end of the day, I got nothing left for you. And, I, you know, I know that's not fair, but what do I do? You dig deep and you scrounge something up for me. Don't be lazy. What do you want me to say? Say she sounds like a She does sound like a I'll kill her for you. Do you know how happy that would make me? I got plenty of hate units left. (laughs) (laughs) Catastrophe Season 2 is on Amazon Prime right now. Sharon Horgan, welcome to Bullseye. It's really great to have you on the show. I I love the show. Thank you. It's really weird hearing that without the visual and hearing Rob make the kind of noise. I can't even do it. (laughs) And not see his face. It was this weird kind of dislocated sound. Rob does. I mean, one of the interesting things to me about Rob Delaney's new career as a British comedian and actor, (laughs) uh, he now lives in London, having moved from here in Los Angeles, is that Rob is like a parody of an American person. Like Fred (laughs) Willard or something. In real life. Well, like, yeah. I mean, just he just is like... Uh, he has he's very handsome in a very sort of smiling and genial way and he just has a kind of like hello quality to him we just fall for that <laughs> hook line and sinker i mean he's he's charming the english ladies all over the place they can't get enough of him he's sort of like he actually sort of reminds me of like when a british comedian is doing an american guy and he's like, oh, how are you? Would you like a casserole? <laughs> but that's how he is in real life. I mean, that's yeah. how he, he operates. He's, you know, he's is very specific <laughs> individual. Um, but that's what's so funny about him. Now, you had had, uh, you've had a, a long television career in the UK. Uh, you created a show called Pulling, which was very deeply beloved. But Rob, until, I don't know, four years ago, maybe three, four years ago, uh, wasn't even working full-time in comedy. Yeah, I know. When the two of you started talking about creating a show, was it always going to be a romance? Oh, no. Oh, God, no. Um, We didn't even, uh, really truthfully, we didn't realize it was... um, a romance or a romantic comedy or whatever you call it until we were screening it. We had a screening <laughs> at, uh, at BAFTA and we showed um, the first two episodes and then we were brought up on stage, you know, to have the chat and uh, the lady who was interviewing us described it as a romantic comedy and we were like, oh, really? Oh, all right then. Um, we definitely never set out to do that. We just wanted to explore uh, a long-term relationship and, and how, you know, sometimes it's just, easier to stay together than go through the my of, you know, having to part. And um, sorry, are you allowed to swear? No, not at all. Oh, I'm so sorry. 
Just that it would be. <laughs> Honestly, I'm I'm more upset by your idea that uh, probably a good premise for a television show is sometimes it's easier just to not break up. <laughs> that I'm, was... Now I'm questioning my my own happy marriage. <laughs> well, you know <laughs> it's you was... know it's true, um, and in fact that was almost our in, entire pitch. Um, for the show and and way, way back in the beginning when we were writing down ideas, we, we had this sort of ridiculous idea that um, they would spend a lot of time talking about the weighing up the pros and cons. Like maybe in every episode we'd see them list the reasons why they should stay together and why they should part and, you know, go in favour of the staying together. Thank God we didn't do that because that's a terrible um, idea. But the essence of that was kind of in there. And I think the reason why it sort of ended up being a romantic comedy is because we ended up spending the first series focusing on them kind of getting together and them falling in love while she becomes more and more pregnant. And and I another reason why it became romantic comedy is that for some reason we're kind of good together on screen. You know, that it's sort of... Uh, there's an inherent kind of, I don't know, sort of sweetness there. Thank God, because the material is quite tough, you know, and I think... Uh, that helps sort of um, balance it a bit, you know? We'll have the rest of my conversation with Sharon Horgan after a break. We'll talk about some of the surprises of parenting and how those are reflected in her show. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. A quick shout-out to one of our sponsors, Casper. They're an online retailer for mattresses. Casper mattresses are American-made and obsessively engineered for comfort. They use two technologies— latex foam and memory foam to give just the right amount of sink and bounce. And they have a risk-free trial. You can try out your Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and returns. It's outrageous comfort at a polite price. So go to casper.com slash bullseye to check out their options. And they have a special offer for listeners of this show. Use the promo code bullseye to redeem $50 toward a Casper mattress that works for you. Terms and conditions apply. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. StoryCorps travels the country collecting the wit, wisdom, and poetry in the stories of everyday people. The StoryCorps podcast showcases these unscripted stories about real life. Listen in and discover meaning in the words of someone you might not notice walking down the street. Find the StoryCorps podcast now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Sharon Horgan, who co-created and stars in the Amazon TV show Catastrophe. I want to play a scene from the first season of Catastrophe. And so uh, basically uh, Rob Delaney's character named Rob uh, has been in London on a work visa. And uh, your character, Sharon, is pregnant. And they've basically decided to co-parent at this point. But he finds out that he's just lost his work visa and they're discussing what to do and where to be. I could work anywhere in Boston. Everyone in advertising knows me there. <laughs> I don't want to live in Boston. Why not? <laughs> because it's Boston. I mean, once you graduate to a place like London or New York, you don't regress to Boston. What's even there? And, you know, my family's here, my job, my friends. Yeah, I had all that, too. And, and now I don't even have a job here anymore. And do you think our baby would like to eat, for example? Because I'd like to be able to buy it food. And I was issued a very specific work visa, not a sit-around-on-a-couch visa. Yeah, okay. It's terrifying. But, you know, just take a minute. Don't go making crazy decisions for us. I will help you. 
And we'll sort it out, but we have to sort it out here. And you know, I mean, just to be practical, you can't fly when you're this pregnant. Isn't that just the last trimester? You can't fly to Boston at any point during your pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to ask you a question about tone. One of the things that's interesting to me about catastrophe is that as brutal and unpleasant and unsparing as the tone is, as much as it's about the problems of relationships and parenting, it's not about these two characters being jerks. Like, not that they're perfect or anything, but, like, the premise isn't what happens when two jerks are so lovable that you just got to love them. And I imagine that must have, to some extent, been a choice, to let them be, like, people just doing their best. Yeah. I, I also think it's hard to make certainly a comedy. Well, it's harder to make a comedy when you have a proper anti-hero as, as the main character and when you have an unlikable um, person. I, I think, you know, you can have flawed characters, of course, and um, it works in, that works in drama and in comedy. But um, I think all we wanted to do was to make them like you or me. Well, not you. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I am a real anti-hero. <laughs> um, we just we wanted to give them flaws and we wanted them to, you know, have hang ups and be selfish and all of those things. But for me, it was exciting. I mean, going back to what you were saying earlier, that there was a, a, a male character who was allowed to be a nice guy who at times under duress very happy to be a jerk. So, um, <laughs> well, he, and, has, he has this kind of he has this kind of heedless quality that you heard in that clip, like this that it also registers as very American to me. Which is when he says, "I could work anywhere in advertising in Boston." <laughs> he doesn't even say it out of self regard. It's just this kind of blind acceptance that, as a white American dude, he's just king of the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's. You know, nothing to be proud of, though, is it? <laughs> um, but and I think um, with Sharon's character, it, it's um, I think she has uh, she's much more of a jerk than him, or at least um, is doesn't care if um, people think she's a jerk. You know, she's she's um, that that was fun to write and sort of. Because I think I've kind of become a bit more like that <laughs> over the years. Um, I used to care so much <laughs> about what what people think of me, and and you know you just kind of get old and gnarly, and you stop um, you stop worrying about all that. And it was nice to put that sort of into um, a, a female character where she's just like, "This is who I am, and what you see is what you get," kind of thing. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Sharon Horgan, who co-created and stars in the Amazon TV show Catastrophe. And just a heads up, we're about to talk about the writing and filming of some of the more explicit romantic scenes from the show. So uh, maybe avoid listening with your kids if you're not ready to have that conversation. I want to ask you a question about uh, making this show. So like a a couple years ago, a friend of mine from high school got cast in romantic sex comedy on cable television. What's it called? It's called You're the Worst. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's a great show, but uh, I watched it and I was like, oh, my God, this sex scene is intense and crazy and brutal. Uh, it's not, like, dark <laughs> at all. Well, it's a little bit dark, but, like, it's just... What happens? Sex, they... Just all kinds of stuff. Right. A broad variety of things. There's no nudity, but oh. all other things happen. Right, right. 
And the only other show that I've seen that has that feeling in the sex scenes is Catastrophe. That it is, it's kind of like mad, flailing, gross, <laughs> but also fun and sexy. You are there. With Stop pointing at me. <laughs> my, you and Rob are there banging into each other. What is that like? Um, okay, so it's, um, I think the really hard thing was writing that stuff um, because you're writing with your pal, you're sitting by your pal, you are just writing comedy and suddenly you realise you've written a really <laughs> graphic, kind of revolting sex scene that you're going to have to perform with the uh, married father of three that's sitting um, beside you. So the, 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 the tricky thing about that was if we, if we ever stopped to think about it, we kind of froze because it felt wrong. So um, once we got over that, it was fine. And then I would say that um, the first time we had to snog, you know, the first kiss was the worst because I think he was so terrified of... Um, I don't think he, he hadn't done any screen kissing. Um, I'd done my fair share of screen kissing. Um, I think he was, you know, he wanted to be a gentleman and um, he was like, Daphne, I am not going to get any tongue or saliva near this woman. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it was like, um, you know, it was it was the most un, unsexy, un kind of um, anything... Um, kiss you've you've ever experienced so but once we got that out of the way all the sort of vile sex acts we did post that were fun because it was uh, it was just um, how can we make this funny and how can we you know make this look um, like real sex and not you know TV sex because no one has sex like that and people don't look beautiful when they have sex they look ugly and they make stupid faces and they grunt and sometimes they fart and sometimes bad things happen and they sweat and um, so we kind of we wanted – I'm surprised even that you said that it, it was sexy because – Well, it's absurd. I mean I, I, I'll disagree with it that the two of you both look beautiful when you're having sex <laughs> on screen. You look fantastic. Um, but there is like – there is a quality to it which it's it isn't simply played as gross. Like it would be a different thing if the sole purpose of it felt like it was to be gross and funny. But instead it is – more like reflective of what doing it is like. Yeah. Which is to say, like, it's a goofy thing. Yes. It's dumb, but it's also in some deep part of your brain the number one most important thing that there is and the number one, like, best, most gratifying thing there is. So the, it's like the two of those things, it's just you just accept the absurdity of it and the goofiness of it in a very sincere way, which is, I think, also just reflective of the way that the show treats uh, Sharon and Rob's relationship. You know, you could all those things that you can say about love, you could you, uh, that you could say about sex, you can also say about love and being in a relationship. Like, it's weird and dumb and... Ridiculous, but also it's the most important thing. Yeah, God, that's completely true. I think in the first series, 
continuing to talk about the sex. The first series we knew we were going to have to have a lot of sex in there because they're just getting to know each other. And, you know, when you get to know someone first, the only thing you're interested in is is having sex with them. And it's a very specific time and it's a very specific kind of feeling that some people think is falling in love and, and isn't. And uh, so we knew we wanted to be as honest as possible about that and show them having enormous amounts of sex. And then in the second season... We knew that people liked the sex <laughs> and, uh, and watching it. But we were like, oh, no, this is like three years in. People have a lot less sex, especially when you've got, you know, two young kids. And so we had we were sort of torn between like being really honest about, you know, the sex in a, in a, in a long term relationship. Um, so, I mean, in the end, we, we sort of had to sort of straddle this thing where, it was kind of functional, you know, and to sort of um, find the, the, the kind of fun and, and the reality in that. But also I think, you know, by the end of the, or certainly in in the middle of the, the second season, you, you know that they love each other, but you know that there's um, extreme difficulties there and there's like wandering eyes and there's, um, you know, a whole bunch of reasons why... Um, it's it's hard for them to sort of continue to be in love, but we also felt like, you know, they're still attracted to each other, you know, and uh, and so therefore people who are attracted to each other have sex. I, I want to ask you a little bit about your own life as a, uh, as a parent and as a married person. When you uh, when you were married, and I don't know how long you've been married, but when you were married, what part of it did you feel like you you didn't expect or or weren't prepared for? Um, I I don't know if I was prepared for any of it because um, you know, like with the show, I got pregnant very um, quickly um, by accident and we sort of shotgun married um, because my parents are Catholic and um, we came home to tell them the great news that we were getting married and then oh and yeah we're just we're gonna have a baby sorry um, so I think um, I I didn't even think about it I didn't it wasn't it wasn't a kind of uh, I never felt like I wanted to be married it was never something I sort of was an aim of mine or it was just a thing that, that happened. And, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, Can I just don't get too romantic because the audience <laughs> won't buy it. No, but I mean, it, what's romantic is that we stayed together. And, and I think that's way more romantic. And I think what's romantic is that we probably like each other more now than we did when he, you know, asked me to marry him. So I don't know what I expected. I, I kind of, expected to feel a little different and I didn't and then um, I expected it to just motor on <laughs> and what it has become is kind of interesting and and I think what it's become is um, you know sometimes it's terrible and then you think this is um, this couldn't get any worse and then you stick it out you ride it out and then you suddenly go oh my god I can't believe I'm feeling like this about the person I hated two years ago. Let's take a listen to a scene from the second season of Catastrophe, starring and co-created by uh, my guest, Sharon Horgan. Um, so basically, 
they've got a toddler and a new baby, and in order to get all of their new baby visits done at once, they've invited all their friends and family over to the house for the day. It's just been brutal and awful, <laughs> and um, they're, I think, sitting in bed together talking about it. I think it may have been irresponsible for us to procreate. Okay. You're an alcoholic. Your mother's a card-carrying sadist. My dad can't remember my name. Fergal, well, nothing's been diagnosed, but, you know, there's obviously a few things wrong there. It's not looking good. Thank God you're so normal. <laughs> what do you think about what my mother was saying? About loving each other more than the kids? I think there's something wrong with her. Okay, good. I was worried it was just me. I just think, if you don't love the kids more than me, then you're not fit to be a mother. Of course I love them more than you. I'm not a sociopath. I haven't even bonded with my baby, and I still love her more than you. You haven't bonded with the baby? No. But do you think you might have a little postnatal depression? I don't know. No. I don't know. I... This is going to sound awful, but I just worry that I don't love Mirren the way I love Frankie. Is that why you gave her a crazy name? Oh. I... Just the minute she came out, she scared me. She looked like an alien. Frankie was beautiful. Even the day he was born, he was just this tiny, beautiful little bean. He weighed four pounds. I mean, he was almost dark red, and he had a hairy back. He was a monster. I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, when I had my second um, baby. That was my experience. Um, she was enormous. I mean, she was... <laughs> she looked... She looked four months old. Um, she had the the face of a sumo wrestler. She was monstrous, <laughs> and she was handed to me. And I was think I just thought, oh my god, I'm never going to bond with you. I was lucky because I like two hours later, she was the love of my life. But it was a weird kind of feeling of you know, temporary as it was, sort of desperation. Well, one of the weird things about working in show business is that the patterns of work are so strange because, you know, I think many to most people uh, go to work and then come home um, with some kind of normalcy, some kind of regularity. And for many people who work in show business, especially film and television, their life is either... uh, not working or all-consuming work. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, when you're shooting something, you're working often more than 12-hour days. Mm -hmm. You know, you might be working 16-hour days or 18-hour days in some cases even. And you have been working on things that you are on camera for and writing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, <laughs> right now you have a Catastrophe on uh, Amazon Prime. You're working on a show for HBO. Uh, like the all-consumingness of that is must be very difficult. I mean, it's scary. It's very scary, but um, I kind of think uh, there's not much I can do about it. I mean, there's definitely choices that I could have made that would have um, um, freed up my life a bit more. But, uh, you know, I think if, uh, as a writer, especially more than even as an actor, you have to have a few projects on the go because so often things don't get picked up. And I've had lean periods. I've had, you know, a, a couple of years where, you know, I, I only made pilots and nothing happened. And so I always, always had um, several projects sort of, you know, ready to go. How about this one? And as it turned out, 
in the last two years about three or four things kind of moved at the same time and uh you know, I'm not Daniel Day-Lewis. I can't sort of take a year or two years off between films because no one would give a um, a, <laughs> a proverbial, you know, whatever about me. Um, they And so, and it's my career and it's, um, when it's going well, it genuinely makes me happy and it genuinely stops me from going mental. And so therefore I know I'm, I'm a better parent and a better person um, because of it. I would be a nightmare um, if I wasn't working, I, I know that. I thought you were about to say I would be a nightmare if I were Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, <laughs> always I would, I always would making be, shoes. I would be a great Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would fit him like a glove. Horgan's coming for you, Lewis. <laughs> Only to be you. Wait, is his surname Day-Lewis or is his first name Daniel Day? His first name is Daniel Day. That's very nice. Yeah, it's a good name. My guest on Bullseye is Sharon Horgan. She's an actor, writer, and the co-creator of the TV show Catastrophe. The show's second season is out now on Amazon Prime. Do you feel secure now? I mean, I will stipulate that you're notably successful at this point <laughs> in your career and exceptionally good at what you do. But having come to success so late in your life as so a late, real as a real a adult <laughs> a, a bit late but as a real adult not as a no, semi adult yeah does do you feel like that makes you feel more secure in uh, the success you've earned or less definitely i don't feel secure in any way definitely think that you know, I still have that crazy thing of like stockpiling um, projects waiting for one or two or more to, to fail. So, but that's not a bad thing. I definitely feel more secure in myself because, you know, there's, um, uh, I don't know, there's a, a confidence that comes with age or, or you know, a belief or whatever. And um I feel very aware of the fickleness of the industry and I think that's a very positive thing. I, I don't expect anything from anyone. <laughs> um I you know, I'm I'm pessimistic but in, in a healthy way, I think. And uh so I, I don't think I would have those sort of um if you want to call them qualities, I don't know if they are flaws, um, if I hadn't sort of started a bit later because I feel like I've I've been through it all and I've kind of, you know, seen it and I, I know the tricks. If you don't expect much from show business, do you still require something of it? Like, is it still important to you to have the approval and does it still hurt really bad when people disapprove? Which is, I'm presuming that you, like everyone else in all of entertainment, got into entertainment in part to approval. get people to like you. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, yeah, it still um, re- really hurts. I mean, if something, you know, um, doesn't go or it doesn't even turn out as I've pictured it in my head, it, you know, it all um, it all hurts. And I, but I don't, I feel like, yeah, um, now I still obviously want approval, mainly from just my family. <laughs> but, um, but I also feel like I just have a need to do it now, I, you know, um, because like I said earlier, I, I think I would sort of lose my marbles um, if I didn't do it. And I kind of, you know, but but I think now I'm a little bit spoilt because I got, I've had, got to make shows that I actually really like and with people I really like and with people that I admire. And so 
that that does kind of get in the way a bit because then you're like, that's all I want to do now. I don't want to do just anything. I don't want to just be employed. I don't want to be just busy. It needs to be something that I care hugely about. Well, Sharon Horgan, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on the show. It was <laughs> okay. really great to get to talk to you. Thank you. It's good to talk to you too. Sharon Horgan is the co-creator and co-star of Catastrophe. The second season is on Amazon Prime now. Every week we like to close the show with a few thoughts from me, your host, the outshot. My wife and I went to see Prince at the Fillmore. It was Valentine's Day, maybe 10 years ago. We were lined up outside. We'd never been to one of his shows, and we were surrounded by the folks who'd gotten tickets through his fan club. And there was this tall guy, like 6'6", maybe, thin, black, maybe 40-something, dressed in this wild outfit. And he was walking down the line of people, and every person in line, he'd stop give them a rose, and tell them that he loved them. For a minute, I was kind of struggling to figure out what was going on. Like, did this guy work for the promoter? Was this like getting a bobblehead at a baseball game? He didn't look high. He didn't seem crazy. He didn't want money. In fact, he didn't seem to want anything. By the time he got to us, it made sense to me. This was just a guy who wanted to share a feeling, just share something beautiful with each person, tell each person he loved them, as they were. Look, Prince might have been the greatest pop musician of the last 50 years. He found number one hits on his garbage pile, and he played every instrument, and he synthesized all the genres, and he danced his rear off in all of that stuff. But it's not just that music. What he left for us was an idea and an example. He was this skinny, short, shy, fey black kid from a rough neighborhood, and he lived in an America where... There were all of these cultural expectations of him, all these ideas based on all of that. And he didn't reject the categories people wanted to put him in. He transcended them. He made them completely irrelevant. It wasn't oppositional. It wasn't negative. Prince said it pretty simply. I am me. I'm doing my thing. And he invited everyone to come visit Paisley Park and do theirs. And so when I think of his leaving... I think of the people whose lives he helped define. I think of kids backed into corners in 1980s America by circumstance or birth or whatever. Weird kids and queer kids and kids who were bad at doing whatever it was that was expected of them. Prince didn't show them how to be Prince. He showed them how they could be themselves, that they could live without apology, love defiantly. Prince gave them a rose. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Avarian Exparello. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. This week, a couple of British guests drop in to discuss the Queen of England as a pop culture diva. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. 
Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.